Hello, and welcome to The Great War Podcast, an in-depth look at the origins, battles, and consequences of the First World War. Episode 38, The Run to the South. We live for two things and two things only, our scrap on the day and the trip south, and our little bit of leave in a sight of some of the gentler sex. They don't even give us the illustrated papers now. They're full of this infernal war, which we hear such a lot about and see so little of. We are supposed to be England's first line of defense in senior service, haven't so much as seen a German or anyone who had been in action themselves. The above observation, written by Sub-Lieutenant Boyer Smith, best encapsulates the attitude of many Royal Navy servicemen on the eve of the Battle of Jutland, and one can hardly blame him for being agitated. For over two years, the world's mightiest navies were locked in a standoff which showed no signs of breaking. Time and time again, the Royal Navy would venture into the North Sea, hoping to draw the reclusive enemy into the reckoning both knew was long overdue. The daily patrols returned with no news, and the on-ship drills became just another part of the monotonous life. Sirens would wail, and the men would take up their stations like clockwork. But by now, they were familiar with the routine, and when the announcement to stand down inevitably followed, their hopes of encountering the Germans evaporated. Another bloody sweep became the unofficial motto for many a disgruntled sailor. Returning to Homeport offered him little consolation. Newspapers ruthlessly criticized their inability to goat the Germans, and the reports from the front lines added to the burden many already felt. They could, however, take comfort in one thing, that with the blockade around Germany tightening, the high seas fleet would have to come out eventually, and when that day arrived, the Royal Navy would be ready. As we saw during our last episode, May the 31st, 1916, would turn out to be the day both sides had prepared and trained for, but one neither had planned or anticipated. As the war fleets left Anchorage, neither had any idea they were heading on a collision course. Vice Admiral Reinhard Scheer, confident in the security of his wireless channels, believed he had caught the English unaware. For the first and last time in his nation's history, the entire might of Germany's navy was at sea. Leading the charge were the forces under Admiral Franz Hipper, Germany's most experienced seagoing admiral. Franz Hipper commanded an impressive formation, which included five state-of-the-art battlecruisers, five light cruisers, and 30 destroyers. Hipper's objective, as you'll recall, was to act as bait, drawing the English into an ambush they were not prepared for. To do this, Reinhard Scheer left nothing to chance, and followed Hipper with the entire might of the high seas fleet. Sixteen dreadnought battleships led the column, followed by six pre-dreadnoughts, six light cruisers, and 31 destroyers. The combined strength of these two formations meant the Germans had 99 ships at sea, primed and ready to fall on their unsuspecting prey. But as the Germans steamed northward, they did not know the British had put to sea four hours earlier. Like the Germans, it was the battlecruisers of Vice Admiral David Beatty's 1st Battle Squadron leading the way. Under David Beatty's command were six battlecruisers, 13 light cruisers, 27 destroyers, four battleships, and a seaplane carrier. It was Beatty's squadron which Reinhard Scheer was hoping to trap, and had he done his math right, his plan could very well have worked. But as we know, David Beatty was not sailing alone that day. Shadowing him 70 miles to the north was Commander-in-Chief Sir John Jellicoe's Grand Battle Fleet, whose presence had given the British a numerical advantage Sheer had no hope encountering. After linking up with additional forces from Cromarty, 
Jellicoe had at his fingertips a mammoth force of 98 vessels, 47 destroyers, 11 light cruisers, 8 armored cruisers, 3 battle cruisers, 1 mine layer, and 28 dreadnought battleships. Between Jellicoe and Beatty, the Grand Fleet combined for 149 warships, more than enough firepower to send the entire German navy to the bottom of the sea. But as the Germans overestimated the security of their wireless codes, the British had fallen into an intelligence gaffe of their own. Despite leaving four hours earlier, the Royal Navy had no idea what awaited them. In a potentially devastating miscommunication, the Director of Operations for Room 40, a Captain Thomas Jackson, informed his admirals that Shear's capital ships remained in anchor. Jackson, you'll recall from last week, had incorrectly identified Shear's call sign, failing to consider he always adopted a new one whenever he put to sea. The results of this ruse meant Jellicoe and Beatty were given no warning that the high seas fleet was out, and it was not until 6pm that evening, two hours after contact, when Jellicoe received confirmation. What sets the Battle of Jutland apart from other First World War battles is that the amount of literature it produced tends to overwhelm the event itself. There have been numerous studies written from both British and German perspectives, which offer minute-by-minute -minute accounts of the battle down to the very detail. David Allen Butler's Distant Victory, Keith Yates's Flawed Victory, and V.E. Terence's study on the German perspective are all superb retellings which place it in the context of its lead-up and aftermath. Even in survey histories of the Sea War, like Robert Massey's Castles of Steel and Richard Hughes' Great War at Sea, Jotland takes the lion's share of the discussion. My point here is that no other battle in the war has produced as much debate among historians than Jutland, and you might be surprised in hearing this, but the battle itself lasted just six hours, from 3.45pm to 8pm that same evening, making it one of the shortest but most important battles we'll ever talk about throughout the podcast. I'm warning you of this because so far we're used to talking about things which took place over weeks or months, but here we're going to cover a lot of moving parts over a very short time period. For example, during the run to the south, which began at 3.45pm to Nbidi encounter Shear at 4.50, we'll be talking about three important fleet maneuvers, the exchange of fire between Hipper and Beatty, the loss of two British battlecruisers, and a minor destroyer battle, all of which took place within a single hour. So it goes without saying that we need to break things down into bite-sized chunks. As mentioned last time, Jutland is divided into five distinct phases, and we're going to cover the first two of those phases today. The run to the south, between Hipper and Beatty, and the run to the north, when Beatty draws the combined German fleet onto Jellicoe, will be our primary focus for this episode. The following three phases, two encounters between Shear and Jellicoe, followed by a nighttime destroyer skirmish, will be left off until next day. I've hopefully done a good enough job of keeping things organized, but if you find yourself wondering what Jellicoe or Shear are up to throughout the episode, we'll be catching up with them next day so we can focus squarely on the battlecruiser action. But before we get too involved, I thought it would be worth it to just take a minute and review the different classes of warships we'll be talking about. So just so we're all on the same page, there will be six classes of warships making an appearance today and next. Dreadnought battleships, pre-dreadnoughts, battlecruisers, armored cruisers, light cruisers, and destroyers. The differences of which vary from displacement, speed, protection, armament, crew complement, and weight of shell. We'll start with the dreadnought and work our way down. On the eve of Jutland, the most powerful naval weapon in the world was the dreadnought battleship. Usually manned by a crew of about 1,000 sailors and officers, 
Dreadnoughts were immense battleships armed with heavy guns and protected by several inches of steel armor. Just as the original HMS Dreadnought revolutionized battleship design back in 1906, each new class continued to improve and outdate the previous. While the first generation were 18,000 tons and capable of making 21 knots, the later models could displace as much as 27 to 30,000 tons with a full load. Armament was also much different. The original HMS Dreadnought was equipped with 10 12-inch guns and 11 inches of armor, compared to, say, Jellicoe's flagship, HMS Iron Duke, which had 10 13.5-inch guns and 12 inches of armor. Dreadnought design underwent so many changes that by 1914, the original class of ships were all but obsolete. Newer models could reach 520 to 620 feet in length and could fire a 1,400-pound projectile at over 10 miles. In short, dreadnoughts were the cream of a nation's navy, and if you wanted to be taken seriously as a global power, having them in your arsenal was not optional. This brings us to battle cruisers, which are best classified as quicker, more agile versions of dreadnoughts. Initially designed to replace the now obsolete armored cruiser, battle cruisers were equal to dreadnoughts in almost every aspect, including cost, crew size, armament, length, and beam. The big difference was that battlecruisers sacrificed their protective armor for superior speed, meaning they could steam 5 to 8 knots faster than the average dreadnought. Obviously, we'll be talking a lot about battlecruisers over the next couple of episodes, since it was Beatty and Hipper's squadrons which carried the bulk of the fighting at Jutland. While engaging a dreadnought wouldn't be the smartest thing for a battlecruiser, they were every bit a decisive weapon. In fact, we have already seen how devastating they can be. It was the battlecruisers, inflexible and invincible, both future veterans of Jutland, which destroyed von Spee's far east squadron off the Falklands in 1914. Two years later at Jutland, Beatty and Hipper's battlecruisers were well stacked. Hipper's flagship, SMS Lutzau, was as modern a warship as they could come. First commissioned in August 1915, she had a displacement of 26,700 tons, a top speed of 26 knots, and armed with eight 12-inch cannons and 12 inches of belt armor. Beatty's flagship, HMS Lion, was displaced at 26,600 tons, top speed of 28 knots, and equipped with eight 13.5-inch guns and 9 inches of belt armor. Indeed, most Royal Navy battlecruisers were not as well armored as their German counterparts. The lack of armor was a source of pride for the British sailor, since it reflected a confidence in their own gunnery and seamanship. Although, as we'll see, this will come back to haunt them once the shells start flying. Light cruisers and destroyers were thus at the bottom of the totem pole. These two classes were built for speed and maneuverability, but lacked heavy weaponry and armor. Serving primarily as recon and support craft, they took on the responsibility of scouting and reporting enemy positions. Their purpose was to never engage battlecruisers or dreadnoughts, but they did have the important and very dangerous job of tracking and reporting the locations of enemy ships. Typically armed with 4-6 to six inch guns and a complement of torpedoes, they stood no chance in a capital engagement, but would use their superior agility to remain outside of gun range, or, as we'll see at Jutland, bait the enemy into a larger force. Alright, so without further ado, let's delve into this thing. To start, we should cover where the fleets were by the afternoon of May the 31st. David Beatty's formation had already crossed three quarters of the North Sea, it was now some 120 miles east of the English coast. Jellicoe, with his battle fleet, was steaming southeast on a converging course, roughly 70 miles north of his colleague's vanguard. While the British headed east, 
the Germans continued on their northern course. Franz Hipper's group had passed Horn's Reef and were 60 miles west of the Jutland Peninsula, with Reinhard Scheer and the High Seas Fleet some 60 miles behind. The weather conditions that day were clear with good visibility. A powerful afternoon sun hung in the sky, and a thin white mist hovered just above the waterline. Humidity was high. On the British ships, news that Scheer remained at anchor had deflated the day's expectations. Many assumed that the Germans had scrapped their plans at the last minute, or already retreated back to port as they had in times past. Crews were put through their usual drills, but as they sailed into the afternoon, they passed the time by playing cards, tanning, or napping in their bunks. BD-6 battlecruisers were formed into two parallel columns on an easterly course, with three light cruiser squadrons forming a protective screen. Adding to his already impressive formation, Beatty was accompanied by the arrival of the 5th Battle Squadron, under the command of a first-class leader, Admiral Hugh Evan Thomas. What makes the 5th Battle Squadron worthy of special mention is that it consisted of four 15-inch gunned Super Dreadnoughts, which are exactly as they sound. These heavily armored behemoths had a top speed of 25 knots and could launch a 1,900-pound projectile at a distance of over 10 miles. They were serious pieces of hardware, and having recently completed gunnery exercises at the main base at Scapa Flow, the arrival of these beasts had given Beatty an overwhelming advantage, ensuring that any meeting with Hipper would be a foregone conclusion. Beatty's orders were to proceed on an easterly course and make rendezvous with Jellicoe when they passed within 90 miles of the Skagerrak. By 2 p.m., Beatty still had some 20 miles to cover. But confident he had missed the Germans, he hoisted flags to warn his fleet of their coming course alteration. One thing I want to point out here is that despite all the technological advances put into these warships, 90% of all ship-to-ship communication had remained unchanged since the days of Nelson. Since wireless messages were received in Morse code and could take several minutes before being forwarded to the bridge, many admirals stuck with the preferred method of their predecessors, the flag hoist. Now, this wasn't because they hated technology or weren't creative enough to find new ways. It was simply the most practical method given the technologies available. The problem, however, was that battleships of the First World War were not the battleships of Nelson's day. The smoke produced from funnels and main batteries was immense, and it was not uncommon for a 28,000-ton vessel to disappear into its own smog if the winds were right. This meant that the ability to receive and confirm flag signals depended heavily on wind and visibility. A battlecruiser firing her main batteries might miss a signal altogether if the breeze did not clear her sight lines in time. Nelson had used his flags to perfection at Trafalgar, but here at Jotland, things were about to get off to a very confusing start. By 2 p.m. that afternoon, there was just 50 miles separating Beatty from Hipper, and had Beatty not altered course, it's possible they would have sailed right past one another. Beatty's turn to the northeast was conducted in two segments. First, Evan Thomas's 5th Squadron of Super Dreadnoughts wheeled first, followed closely by the light cruisers and Beatty's own battle squadron. But on the extreme eastern point of the formation, one lone cruiser decided to delay its turn just a few minutes longer. The light cruiser in question was the HMS Galatea, commanded by Commodore Edwin Alexander Sinclair. As the most extreme ship of the line, the Galatea had the distinction of being just 16 miles away from Hipper's own patrol screen. A bridge lookout had spotted what appeared to be a plume of smoke, roughly 8 miles away. 
As a light cruiser, the Galatea's main responsibility was to report all potential sightings, and thus Sinclair increased speed to investigate the mysterious site. It took about 10 minutes before Sinclair could identify with any certainty, and when confirmation was made, found himself face to face with a threat he never could have imagined. Before them was a heavily armed Danish merchant ship, which had been caught cooling her boilers in the afternoon heat. But just as Sinclair was to report the sighting a fluke, something else entered the picture. Emerging from behind the civilian craft were two of Franz Hipper's destroyer scouts, SMS Elbing and Frankfurt, which, like Galatea, had been dispatched to investigate the civilian ship. At 2.20pm, Galatea hoisted flags and radio to Beatty, all while opening fire on the Germans with her 6-inch guns. These were the first shots of the Battle of Jutland. As the light cruisers contested, Sinclair noticed additional smoke creeping its way on the horizon and could make out the dark shapes lurking within. Another squadron of light cruisers, followed by five German battle cruisers, were bearing down at full speed. Eager to warn Beatty of the oncoming threat, Galatea reverses course full throttle, with the Germans hot on her heels. Aboard his flagship, HMS Lion, Beatty had just completed his turn when Sinclair's reports arrived on the bridge. Heavy smoke could mean only one thing. Franz Hipper was at sea. Alarms to take up action stations rang out, echoing down the ships of the line. The other battle cruisers, Princess Royal, Queen Mary, Tiger, New Zealand, and Indefatigable, each repeated the call. Men scrambled to their stations, stuffing cotton in the rears to dull the roar of the main batteries. Beatty was determined to cut Hipper off before he could make his escape. Ordering Ray's steam to 19 knots, the battlecruiser formation reverted back southeast, heading straight towards the unsuspecting Germans. Vice Admiral David Beatty had a personality which could sometimes get the better of him, but the confidence he felt that afternoon was unflappable. With Evan Thomas's super dreadnoughts, he outnumbered Hipper 10 to 5 in capital ships, all of which were faster, better armed, and with greater range than the Germans. He expected that Hipper would try to run, just as he had during their previous meeting at the Dogger Bank in 1915. But on this day, his overconfidence would run him into trouble. His eagerness to engage Hipper had caused his formation to scatter. A signaling mix-up had resulted in these super dreadnoughts not receiving the modified order until they were 10 miles north of Beatty's original position. As a result, Evan Thomas's formation continued northeast at 22 knots, while Beatty sailed southeast in the opposite direction. The immediate result of this meant the Germans had reached fighting parity before battle had even joined. Beatty had expected to engage with 10 capital ships to 5, but with Evan Thomas's formation sailing further apart, he could count just a 6 to 5 advantage, battlecruiser against battlecruiser. More dangerously than the loss of the 5th squadron was that Beatty had grossly miscalculated his adversary's intention. Hipper was not going to run, and upon receiving reports from Frankfurt and Elbing, Franz Hipper put the first phase of the German plan into motion. Increasing speed to 20 knots, Hipper's formation doubles back, positioning themselves alongside Beatty to the east, now on parallel courses. It took just one hour for the two admirals to finally meet, and it was Hipper who spotted his opponent first. Aided by the glaring sun, Hipper was able to mask his approach. At 3.35pm, George von Hayes, chief gunnery officer aboard the battlecruiser Durflinger, reports sighting the English line, saying, quote, Black monsters, 
six tall green giants steaming in two columns, end quote. Although Hipper had several minutes to get his ships in order, it should never be discounted that no one expected to meet the British this early, and the sudden realization they were now face-to-face -face with their foe was an overwhelming experience. Instead of drawing accurate trajectories, the moment had given way to frayed nerves and panic. Hipper's five battlecruisers, led by Lutzow, Durflinger, Seidlitz, Moltke, and von der Tann, closed within range, and it was the elite gunnery ship Durflinger which first opened fire. As expected, the opening salvos flew harmlessly overhead, crashing into the waters hundreds of meters behind. Hipper had lost the element of surprise, but the speed in which he closed had gotten his formation within range before the British could react. The two fleets crashed into battle line at 3.45 that afternoon, roughly 90 miles west of the Jutland Peninsula. Aided by the glare of the sun, Hipper closed distance. 23,000 yards, 20,000 yards. And once he was within range, the German battlecruisers joined a single column parallel to the British, separated by a 15,000-yard no-man's land. The run to the south was about to begin. For the next 55 minutes, the two lines of battlecruisers would engage one another in a violent exchange as the thunder of 11, 12, and 13.5-inch guns would shatter the slumbrous North Sea War. If the British thought they had another Trafalgar on their hands, the opening moments of the battle would be a severe disappointment. Fire distribution among their ships was an absolute mess. No one was firing on their assigned targets. Beatty had hoped to use the numerical advantage by having his flagship Lion and Princess Royal concentrate on Hipper's Lutzow, leaving the others to engage ship for ship. Instead, Beatty got the opposite. Queen Mary, third in line, fired on the third German ship, Seidlitz. Tiger and New Zealand both fired on Moltke. At the end of the line, the two eldest ships, Indefatigable and von der Tann, engaged in their own private duel. This left the second German ship, Durflinger, to fire unimpeded for nearly 10 minutes, where she was able to land several hits on Beatty's line. Three minutes after contact, Hipper and Beatty were locked in a furious dance. The cacophony of their primary turrets reached every corner of every vessel. Dense clouds of smoke engulfed the ships as both sides scrambled to gain the advantage. The shrieks of overhead projectiles and the impacts of twisted steel filled the air. An officer on board New Zealand recalls the opening exchange, saying, quote, It was hard to believe that a battle was actually commencing. It was so like an exercise the way in which we and the Germans turned up on more or less parallel courses and waited for the range to close before letting fly at each other. It all seemed very cold-blooded and mechanical. No chance here of seeing red, merely a case of cool, scientific calculation and deliberate gunfire." End quote. Aboard Durflinger, George von Hayes recalled a similar experience. Quote, Dense masses of smoke accumulated around the muzzles of the guns, growing into clouds as high as houses, which stood for seconds in front of us like an impenetrable wall and were then driven by the wind and way over the ship. In this way, we often could see nothing of the enemy for seconds at a time, as our foretop was completely enveloped in thick smoke." End quote. Indeed, it was the visibility which gave the Germans the upper hand in this run to the south. With the sun to their backs and wind clearing the smoke from their turrets, the German gunners were able to hit faster and more accurately than their British opponents. Just after 4 o'clock, Beatty's flagship Lion was struck twice the first shell destroying her wireless station. The second hit, however, was much more serious. 
A heavy shell from Lutzow punctured the armor plating near her mid-turret and ignited the cordite stored below. The resulting explosion tore the steel back like a sardine can and incinerated half the gun crew instantly. Despite the damage, Lyon continued to fight aggressively, but this was an ominous sign of things to come. Because at the other end of the line, Von der Tan and Indefatigable, the most senior battlecruisers in action that day, continued their private duel. Initially, Indefatigable appeared to hold the upper hand, but at 4.05pm, just 20 minutes after contact with Hipper, the British would suffer their first major blow. Two salvos from Von der Tan struck home, driving deep into Indefatigable's superstructure. Seconds after, the battlecruiser was rocked by a cataclysmic explosion, tearing through her hull and flooding the compartments. Indefatigable lurched sideways and heeled over. It took less than one minute for her to sink beneath the waves. Of her 1,019 officers and crew, only two would survive the sinking. The destruction of Indefatigable had leveled the field in Germany's favor. Both admirals now had five battlecruisers apiece. But the details were much less forgiving. Indefatigable was sunk, while Lion, Princess Royal, and Tiger had all taken several hits apiece. Now that von der Tan was free, her weight of guns could be brought against the British line. The 10-5 advantage Beatty had sailed with had evaporated within an hour, and it looked like Hipper might actually get the better. But if David Beatty was worried, he was lucky it never made it into the histories, because just three minutes after the loss of Indefatigable, two colossal splashes straddled the German line. These geysers can only have come from one source. At 4.12pm, Evan Thomas's 5th Battle Squadron had corrected their mistake, and reversed course to join the action. Ranging their shots at 19,000 yards, the 1,900-pound shells screamed as they flew overhead. While their first shots missed, their arrival marks an important turning point in the battle. As the official German history records, quote, As many headed as a hydra, the British Navy thus produced four more powerful opponents to take the place of the destroyed indefatigable, end quote. If Franz Hipper was to lure his enemy onto Scheer's dreadnoughts, he would first need to survive the gauntlet. But with the arrival of Evan Thomas's super dreadnoughts, his window to flee towards Sheer was beginning to close. Seidlitz and von der Tan had received hits from the 15-inch behemoths, managing somehow to stay afloat. To reduce the chances of being struck, Hipper ordered his line to zigzag, which in addition to making it a difficult target, reduced the accuracy of his own fire. The momentum was shifting back to the British. With the added weight of the 5th Battle Squadron, the British crews benefited from the morale boost. The initial shock had passed, nerves had settled, and training began to kick in. Over the next 15 minutes, Lion, Queen Mary, and New Zealand each landed salvos on their targets. Von der Tan took the worst of these hits, having been struck by both a 12 and 15 inch shell simultaneously, jamming her rear turret and flooding the magazine. Hipper would need to get out quick. That is until the British suffered another disaster. As the ferocious battle raged, the 26,000-ton Queen Mary found herself taking fire from Durflinger and Seidelitz simultaneously. The firepower of the two German warships proved too much. Twenty 12-inch guns were concentrated on the single battlecruiser. Despite landing a hit on Seidelitz, her day of battle was soon to end. Queen Mary was hit by a direct salvo with three of four shells landing directly on the weakly armored foredeck. 
Two massive explosions followed. The battlecruiser bucked and broke up, her stern rising clean out of the water, silhouetted in clear view of the German gunners. The nearby British ships, Tiger and New Zealand, were showered with hot debris as a final terrific explosion engulfed the ship. Only eight men out of 1,266 would be rescued. The battlecruiser fight was now reaching its zenith. As the powerful warships unleashed their thunderous salvos, a second battle was unfolding between the two sides' destroyer squadrons. At the same time as Beatty, Hipper ordered his destroyers into the shell-torn seas between the lines. Fifteen German destroyers were now in a gun and torpedo duel with twelve British. The confusing twists of this secondary battle are not important to us, but the reason it was undertaken was to take some of the pressure off the battlecruisers and allow for a bit of breathing room. Hipper needed to escape the cannonade, while Beatty had just lost two battlecruisers in a span of 20 minutes. Both admirals were not about to risk a torpedo attack against their lines, and thus evasive maneuvers from the battlecruisers were undertaken. The destroyer battle lasted just 20 minutes before Beatty recalled his force. Two destroyers were sunk on either side, but only one battlecruiser, Seidlitz, was hit with little damage. At 4.40pm, Beatty took survey of the situation. In just under one hour of combat, he had lost two battlecruisers and two destroyers, at a cost of more than 2,285 men. Not to mention, Lion, Princess Royal, and Tiger all taking considerable damage. Despite the advantage of guns, ships, and weight of shell, None of Hipper's battlecruisers had been sunk or even knocked out of the battle. Afterwards, it was concluded that Hipper had scored 32 hits on Beatty, while taking only 14 in return. So it was on the bridge of Lyon when, all things considered, Beatty summarized the situation as best he could. Turning to the bridge captain, he uttered the famous words, There seems to be something wrong with our bloody ships today. Indeed, if Jutland was to be Trafalgar 2.0, they had some catching up to do. So with all of this going on, it is important to remember that the two formations were headed southward at a shared speed of about 20 knots. The opening salvos to the destruction of Queen Mary had taken place within a single hour. Being unable to withstand the overwhelming fire, Hipper had used a destroyer skirmish to break from the battle line. It was now steaming east-southeast away from Beatty, but the English admiral was not about to lose sight of his target. Although they had suffered heavily, spirits aboard the English ships remained high. Immediately after his famous uttering, Beatty ordered a further coast alteration in an aggressive pursuit of Hipper. Indeed, an officer aboard New Zealand reported that the men's spirits remained high, and that the idea of defeat had not entered their minds. If anything, the loss of Indefatigable and Queen Mary hardened their resolve to destroy Hipper once and for all. What Beatty did not know at the time was that the further he pursued Hipper, the closer he came to completing the role he had been written. One of the reasons the High Seas Fleet remained undetected by this point was because Beatty's recon screen had been scattered as a result of the fighting. For example, Sinclair's light cruisers initially sailed ahead of Beatty's formation, but at 4.30pm were now to the extreme west. But by 4.20pm, things had been reorganized somewhat and the second light cruiser squadron, commanded by Commodore William Goodenough, had managed to climb their way to the front of the van, some two and a half miles ahead of Lyon. On the bridge of the light cruiser Southampton, Goodenough was surveying the horizon, when, to the astonishment of all on board, 
witnessed a sight they had not anticipated. Dead ahead, there came into sight a great black pall of smoke, and then, almost at once, the masts, funnels, and upper works of battleships. Flag Lieutenant Arthur Peters spoke for all of those in the squadron when he turned to Goodenough and said, Look, sir, this is the day of a light cruiser's lifetime. The whole of the high seas fleet is before you. Aboard Lion, the electrifying news hit like thunderclap. Have sighted enemy battle fleet bearing southeast, rapidly closing at less than seven miles. But Commodore Goodenough was not finished yet. Unwilling to lose sight of the German fleet, he turned Southampton to within 13,000 yards of Shear's battle line. The German gunners, either confused or unsure of what was before them, initially held their fire, giving the English scout enough time to accurately report their formation, direction, and speed. After an awkward few minutes, heavy shells began to splash all around Southampton. A single one of these projectiles would have blown the cruiser clear out of the water, but good enough was a senior officer with many years' experience. Southampton, with a top speed of 25 knots, proved a difficult target. Zigzagging to avoid the shellfire, Goodenough stuck to the German fleet like glue. Using the old idiom that lightning never strikes the same area twice, Goodenough had his squadron steer towards the splashes of the enemy salvos, never allowing the Germans to get an accurate reading. Meanwhile, back on Lutzau, Franz Hipper had completed his task admirably. He had lured Beatty to Shear at a cost of only two destroyers. With his mission now complete, he swung his battle cruisers northward in an effort to sandwich the British between the two German formations. All that was left to do now was watch as Shear's dreadnoughts completed the massacre. On board Lion, Beatty did not have a lot of time to react to the news. He knew right away that he had been lured into a trap. Foolish on his part, yes, but there was a silver lining. The presence of Shear's main fleet was a clear indicator that the Germans thought Beatty was alone. They couldn't have known that just 50 miles over the horizon lay Jellicoe's 28 dreadnoughts. Beatty now had two responsibilities. One, to escape the clutches of Shear, and two, lead the Germans directly to Jellicoe in the main battle fleet. Immediately ordering his fleet to reverse course, it took just a few minutes for Beatty to see the masts and smoking funnels of Shear's dreadnoughts. Hoisting flags, Lion, Princess Royal, Tiger, and New Zealand began to turn away from Shear's line. But in an eerie reflection of earlier events, Evan Thomas, again, did not receive the signal until it was too late. The 5th Battle Squadron was fully occupied with attacking Hipper, and quite literally did not notice Beatty's course reversal until they saw him waving from his bridge, heading in the opposite direction. This resulted in the 5th Battle Squadron coming within range of the German dreadnoughts. It was a hot corner. The German guns opened up, but the four super dreadnoughts managed to Tokyo drift themselves underneath their arc of fire. Swinging the fingers of their 15-inch guns towards Shear's line, the super dreadnoughts returned fire, lending several hits which glowed orange as they struck their target. For the next hour, it was the super dreadnoughts which would prove their worth. Beatty was now three miles northward when Evan Thomas's four ships, Barham, Valiant, Warspite, and Malia, were pursued not only by Shear, but also Hipper, who had just completed his wheel northward in pursuit. Despite being outnumbered by 20 to 4, Evan Thomas would more than make up for his communication kerfuffles. The run to the south was now over. The run to the north was about to begin. 
The time was 4.50 p.m., only one hour after Hipper and Beatty made contact. In the run to the north, it was Hugh Evan Thomas's Super Dreadnoughts which takes center stage. Fire distribution between the four battleships was much improved over Beatty's. The two most northern ships, Barham, Thomas's flagship, and Valiant, concentrated their fire on Hipper, while Warspite and Malia were to contend with Shear's Dreadnoughts. For the next hour, the turrets of these behemoths would glow red as the first contest between Dreadnoughts got underway. Keeping score of this engagement is difficult. The British ships took heavy damage. Barham and Malia were hit half a dozen times apiece, causing hundreds of casualties and significant structural damage to turrets, wireless stations, and medical. But the Germans paid a price as well. The 15-inch guns of the Super Dreadnoughts had taken their toll. Four of Hipper's battlecruisers received serious hits. Seidlitz was sapped of her fighting power and was left listening to port, while Hipper's flagship Lutzow lost communication with the rest of the fleet after a direct hit severed her wireless station. Oh, and flags were practically useless by this point, as the smoke from the damage made reading them impossible. In other words, Hipper could no longer communicate with his force. It would soon need to abandon Lutzow in order to continue the fight. Aboard his 27,000-ton dreadnought flagship, Reinhard Scheer felt his moment was at hand. Beatty had fled north out of sight, and it looked like Evan Thomas would be caught and destroyed at any moment. The vanguard of the high seas fleet was pursuing at a speed of 21 knots and scoring numerous hits. Although Hipper's recon group was damaged, their task had been completed. If he could sink just one of the super dreadnoughts, he would have the victory he had envisioned. At 5.30 p.m., he gave the order to give chase. Thirteen miles to the north, David Beatty had just given the same order. After escaping, Beatty used the lull in action to have his men repair the ships as best they could. By 5.45 p.m., the surviving battlecruisers were ready to re-enter the action, catching the Germans completely off guard. The remaining battlecruisers, Lion, Princess Royal, Tiger, and New Zealand, fanned out in a long line from north to northeast, and Franz Hipper immediately recognized the seriousness of the situation. For all you Navy buffs out there, you are probably well familiar with the term of crossing the enemy's T. But for those of you who are not, crossing the enemy T is a tactic in naval warfare where one fleet crosses the tip of an approaching fleet, allowing the crossing fleet to bring the full power of their broadsides to bear. Think of it as the naval equivalent to getting on 1-6 in aviation. It was the number one thing you want to avoid at all costs. Franz Hipper recognized what Beatty was attempting to do, and he immediately ordered his ships to steer away. David Beatty had timed this move to perfection. By deflecting Hipper on an eastern course, Beatty had put him on a direct path to Jellicoe's vanguard, and since Lutzow had her wireless comms knocked out, there was no way for Hipper to notify his fleet or sheer of the oncoming threat. Their German admiral was forced to give ground, slowing his fleet down to prevent falling within British gun range. As the fleets continued their northeast hook, both found themselves steaming into a thick haze, and for several minutes lost sight of one another. It was during this patch of silence when the battle would unfold into its final climactic phase. At 5.50pm, the German battlecruisers would emerge from the mists and what the men on board saw made their stomachs drop. As soon as the sights cleared, medium and heavy caliber gunfire began to fall all around them, 
turning the sea into a forest of geysers. The Germans were caught totally by surprise. In the confusion, Hipper and Scheer received conflicting reports. First, it was light cruisers which were attacking. Then, it was battle cruisers. They did not have to wait around for the third. Lined across the horizon, like a thick steel bar, was Jellicoe's main battle fleet. 28 dreadnoughts, 3 battle cruisers, and a host of smaller warships lined in battle formation, bearing down at 20 knots. Next week, we'll pick up with the next phase of the Battle of Jutland, which saw the dreadnoughts of Jellicoe and Shear's war fleets finally meet. Not only would this be the largest clash of battleships ever to take place, but it was also the most controversial. Scheer, who hoped to avoid an entanglement with the Royal Navy, would risk his ships in foolhardy attempts to escape, while Jellicoe, with more ships and firepower to his benefit, would prove reluctant to press home the advantage. We'll begin dissecting this critical part of the battle by covering what was happening with Jellicoe's fleet during the run to the south, but we'll also need to cover what is, in my opinion, the most dramatic act of the whole event, which is the ride of Admiral Horace Hood's 3rd Battle Squadron, an intervention which, time to perfection, saved the Grand Fleet from absolute destruction. That's it for this week. Thank you so much for listening. For a complete list of sources, be sure to visit our website at thegreatwarpodcast.podbean.com. By going to that address, you'll find email and Twitter information if you wish to get in contact with me. Questions and comments are always more than welcome. This week, I would like to extend a thank you to listener Ebenir, who became the show's most recent donor. Thank you very much for your generosity, Ebenir, and I do hope I pronounced that correctly. If you are interested in helping out the podcast, you can give a one-time donation through the homepage. There is no limit to how much you can donate, but every little bit helps and goes a long way in keeping the show going. Or another great way to help us out is to give us a 5-star ranking on iTunes. It's quick and easy, and with an increased listener base, I'll be forced to remain chained to my laptop pumping out new episodes. Thanks again for listening and we'll see you again shortly.